Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Southern Cal, Tyler, your home turf. We're going to go out to California on this show. We are. We are. We're talking to a great guest who ha- who is currently yeah. uh, on the line from, from Ventura County, my, my home county. That's right. It's always exciting. Well, it's great to have that connection, and, uh, we, and and I'm excited about the opportunity to do this show today because we're going to be talking to Zach Plopper. He is the environmental director for our, one of our favorite coastal ag- advocacy organizations, uh, the Surfrider Foundation. And uh, Zach joined uh, joined Surfrider in December, so uh, congratulations to Zach on the new position with um Surfrider, and we're going to just always like to check in with them, Tyler, and get an update on what's on the minds of this great group. Well, obviously, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you've been following along, we've had an ongoing dialogue with the Surfrider Foundation for that very reason, Peter. Yep. They are kind of the preeminent coastal advocacy organization, certainly on the California coast, but uh, all over the country. There are chapters, there are motivated grassroots uh, volunteers picking up trash, doing all sorts of community activism in city hall meetings. This is the Surfrider Foundation. All over the American shoreline, they are doing this sort of thing. And what we know from our past conversations with uh, the CEO, Chad Nelson, is that uh, this is an organization that sees its role going into the future on the American shoreline as being a central one. And there's no doubt that the environmental director position is going to be a central, central role. Key spot. And what we're talking, if this was a basketball team, we'd be talking about like your starting center. <laughs> this is a key position. This is a key one. So uh, really looking forward to talking to, to, to Zach today about his, who he is, his background, where he came from, and what he hopes to do uh, in this really exciting new job. Right on. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by... LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Zach, thank you very much for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast from the beautiful Ventura County area. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, very excited to, to be on the show and to talk to you guys today. Well, Zach, uh, we're going to get into your background, but first, before we do, give me a quick vibe check here. You've been at it for, I guess, a couple months. Uh, what What is your current uh, vibe here, just starting this new position with Surfrider Foundation? Well, it's a little bit of everything. I think uh, onboarding happened very quickly in, in mid-December. Um, spent a few days at our HQ in San Clemente, Orange County, California. Um and then it was just hit the ground running. We got a busy 2022, a uh, lot of federal priorities, lot of stuff going on at the local and state level across the country. So I'm really learning as I'm as I'm going here, um, which is kind of the, the only way to do it. But every day is something new. Every hour is a different conversation. 
learning from our great team across the country. So it's been really exciting and a lot of fun so far. Well, Zach, uh, talking to you there uh, in Ventura County, as, as we've said, I feel like I know you, but uh, I don't actually. Uh, this is our first time actually talking. So tell me a little bit about uh, your background. Where are you from and how did you become connected with the coast? Sure. Well, I, I kind of feel like everything I've done in my life to this point has kind of set me up for this this role at Surfrider. I grew up by the beach in, in Solana Beach in North San Diego County. Um, idyllic childhood, being able to walk to some great surf spots that I kind of naturally gravitated to that sport from a really early age, nine or 10 years old. I was standing up on my boogie board and then um, competing as a surfer by the time I was 11 and sponsored at an early age. Uh, neither of my parents surf. My dad's from the Midwest. Um, so they didn't quite understand it, but they, uh, they saw how much happiness it brought me and, um, a, you know, a healthy outdoor free, awesome recreation opportunity that kind of enveloped my life um, to an extent still to this day. Um, I, uh, I did my undergrad at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, just down the road from where I grew up. I thought, why would I want to go to college anywhere else other than on the bluffs above La Jolla and Black's Beach and just an incredible stretch of coastline there. Uh, I started off as a biology major at a very competitive science-oriented school. Um, I struggled with that. I took off for Northern Spain my junior year. I uh, lived in a city called Santander on the north coast of Spain, just outside of the Basque country, and studied Spanish art and architecture for about a year and a half. And through that, I got, was made aware of this field of urban planning um, that really got me interested in how we structure our built environment and how we uh, integrate that with the natural environment. And while I was there, I noticed that UCSD actually had a really good urban planning program. And I, I switched majors, dove into that, loved it, relished every minute um, of those last two years of undergrad. And that kind of set me up for a, a career in conservation. Um, after UCSD, took two years off, taught for a year, traveled around surfing my brains out for a year, ran out of money and went to graduate school uh, at UCLA um, in urban planning. So I got to continue that for another couple years. It was there that I uh, learned about an organization called Wild Coast and was approached by Wild Coast's uh, founder and still executive director, Dr. Serge Dedina, um, about for my master's thesis, helping the organization set up a plan to protect one of the last vast desert wilderness coastlines left in North America on the, the Baja California Peninsula in, in Northwest Mexico. So for my second year at grad school, I was taking field trips down to the to the incredible deserts of, of central Baja and meeting with landowners and doing site surveys and coming up with a strategy for, for protecting this region. And that project, which is a 76 page document, um, turned into a full-time position right after graduating from UCLA. And so that started a 13 year career, um, with wild coast 
I started managing and, and running that that project. Well, before um, we actually let me yeah. let me let me I just want to say take a pause here and tell the folks out there sure. that are listening to this show is that, ladies and gentlemen, is how it is done. <laughs> That's how you become a coastal environmental professional in the conservation universe. That sounds like an incredible trajectory of both education and experience. Um yeah, you, know, you got picked up by Surfrider here in December 2021, so sort of in the first quarter of your job. But as you mentioned, 13 years at Wild Coast, um, and just looking at the website for Wild Coast and what that organization about, uh, you know, you, a tremendous uh, organization. So you come into Surfrider well equipped. So uh, talk to us, yeah, talk to us now a little bit about about what you what was important about Wild Coast for you, and, and from an issue standpoint, and 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 from a personal professional standpoint. Yeah. So it's it's Wild Coast is an ecosystem based conservation organization. So it's focused on protecting places and. I knew you know, very little beyond just kind of academic background on how you might do that and learned so much from the onset of just being kind of thrown into this. So raising money to do the work, meeting on the ground with people, the on the ground protected area management work. And this was in a binational setting. So in Mexico and in the US, on my first week in the job, I was down in La Paz meeting with Mexico's National Park Service. And they're like, what is this 25-year-old Californian doing here? And uh, uncomfortable, you know, my Spanish at that point was pretty good, but not as good as it would become after after working with this binational um, team. But um, it was, you know, as facing those uncomfortable situations, whether it's out in the field or in a meeting, really kind of equipped me with a lot of the, the tools um, from a personal and a professional standpoint to be able to take on really any challenge. Um, I think that the field experience is key and, and I bring a lot of that cause I was managing that work in the far flung isolated desert coasts of Mexico. But then I had to kind of meet that on the policy side, um, first in Mexico, working at the federal level of government, but then later in California, uh, a subsequent role I had at Wild Coast was helping the organization run our Marine Protected Area Program and helping the state of California develop and implement a management framework for what is the world's largest integrated network of marine protected areas. So I think being out in the field, uncomfortable, being thrown into uncomfortable situations really gives you the tools to, to handle anything. Um, and the approach is the same, you know, staying calm, being prepared. Um, so it's, I got all this experience at Wild Coast. So it was like a, you know, prolonged PhD program in a way, um, learned a lot about policy, learned about, about facilitation, fundraising, NGO mechanics. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was all that experience there that prepared me for, for this new role at, at Surfrider. Wow. Well, uh, it's, it's certainly an enriching experience. And I, I actually do want to, uh, before we move on, Peter, I'm just super interested in your discovery of urban planning uh, in Spain and kind of the experience of comparing the Southern California built environment to what you saw in Spain, kind of your, your, your first um, kind of comparative 
thoughts as to how the trajectory that, uh, say, the, the built environment along the California coast was on uh, now that, you know, in that moment when you were becoming aware of what that was? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, first and foremost, it was, wow, I'm in a city of two, 200,000 people in Spain, yet you can walk to every single corner of it. And people do. And there's all this public space and inclusiveness with young people and old people. And having that kind of more dense living situation and a lot more integrated land uses saves a lot of space around their cities for open space. So you have this, you know, denser urban environment that's really surrounded by, by beaches and, and national parks and forests and whatnot. And is almost the antithesis of San Diego, which is sprawl. You can't walk anywhere. Um, there's been a lot of improvements over the years, um, not just in San Diego, but I think in urban cores throughout the country, but it was completely opposite ends of the spectrum. And first, just noticing that from a social stand, you know, social context in Spain and then wondering, okay, why, why is it that, you know, elderly people are out in the plaza in the afternoon and kids are running around and everyone's really healthy and they're walking around places. And, and the beaches are beautiful. Um, what is it that gets it to that point? And then looking at Southern California, it's like, okay, now what can we do? Not to recreate that, because we can't be able to, but how do we best adapt kind of the bad decisions that we've made over the past 40, 50 years in terms of how we structure our, our, our livable spaces? Um, but how do we adapt that to something that's more equitable, that's less resource intensive, um, more affordable, healthier. And so that's really what drove me into that area of, of learning as a student. Um, and then since then, I've kind of been able to apply uh, a lot of those pieces really to the work of conservation, which see on the surface doesn't seem related, but it absolutely is. You know, as my first point, if we structure our cities in such a way, then, then we can save space around it for nature and for all the services that nature provides. Wow, yeah, definitely. And uh, it seems, Peter, that every every show we do, it's about the increased, we realize the increasingly uh, interconnected nature of the coast. It's, it's not just simply the beach and then the upland development and everything kind of in its own little neat silo. Everything is connected. But but also I'm interested in the uh, your early... Uh, comparisons and contrasts between the California coast and the Baja shoreline too, because it's interesting that you see, you know, in San Diego, there's this sprawl. I mean, that's, we're not talking 200 miles away from, I believe this wild coast that you're working to save uh, or preserve. And, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on seeing that contrast and, and maybe the differences in developmental pressure between uh, up in California and just down the way in Baja. Yeah, so it's firstly, you know, the, the northern Baja region is the city of Tijuana, um, the city of Rosarito, all the way down to Ensenada. And it's a, it's a major um, metropolitan area. Um, but what strikes you initially when you drive through that zone is at least from like a 
beach looking person is the lack of public access to coast to, to coastline. Um, a lot of private privately held coastal areas, really bad rapacious development occurs clearly unplanned. And that seeing that made me appreciate the access provisions that we have in California, um, where the beach is for everybody by law in Mexico, the beach is for everybody in practice, it often doesn't happen. So when that's met with these bad development projects, a lot's at stake, both from like a wildlife habitat and ecosystem perspective to public access to the coast, even in like just the aesthetics. Cause a lot of these projects that have happened over the past 20 or so years down there, um, oftentimes don't get finished, uh, and just left abandoned. And the coast between Ensenada and the border is rife with those sorts of, of bad development projects. So seeing what's at risk and very real risk um, pushed this interest of Wild Coast and its supporters to help protect really kind of the, the last intact wilderness area where there was those development pressures to put golf courses and cruise ship terminals and, and what have you um, in an area totally isolated, no services, pretty harsh climate, really windy, really dry and not a place people are going to go vacation. So the wilderness is the value, and that's what attracts people to that area, whether it's the surfing, um, off-roading, or just nature enthusiasts um, go there because of that wilderness aspect of it. And it's home to uh, uh, fishing, small fishing communities and ranchers that just live, you know, salt-of-the-earth people that just live totally intertwined with, with nature. So... It was those aspects that um, drove Wild Coast and myself to, to protect that region. Um, and yeah, as you're right, it's, it's that region specifically is about 500 miles south of the border, about a day's drive, but the contrast is striking. Mm -hmm. And you can see landscapes there that really look a lot like what you know certain coastal landscapes would look like in California, say 100, 200 years ago. Um, so preserving that was, was a lot of fun and very fulfilling. Um, and hopefully I can take my kids down there one day and, and show them some of my work. Nice. You know, it's interesting, as you said, a California guy kind of shows up in Mexico under the banner of Wild Coast, as you said, it, which is an international NGO and, as you said, ecology-based organization. Zach, I'm interested in how the project turned out. Were you successful in setting up a protected area or uh, conservation measures that were satisfactory to your organization? And... What did you learn about working internationally and uh, the opportunities that are available to American conservationists to work around the world? In enlighten us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the project was extraordinarily successful. The, the conservation tool that we came up with was direct land acquisition and conservation easements. So actually buying, buying land. And as a binational organization, that's a registered nonprofit in Mexico as well in the United States, we could outright purchase um, property. Um, so we were actually able to purchase almost 30 properties totaling about 55,000 acres of land, wow. 38 miles of coastline, something you couldn't ever accomplish in, in California um, or very few other places in the world for that matter. So uh, it's... Yeah, I mean, looking at the scale of it and then kind of, you know, 
um, putting that on a map of, you know, what, what, is it, what would that look like for Southern California? It's a huge swath of coastline yeah. that, that we were able to, to protect. Um, gosh, and what I learned, and so I worked on that project for five years before I was kind of uh, relocated to marine protected area work in California, but I learned a lot um, and working, you know, in this international setting too, uh, a lot about listening, learned a lot about stakeholder engagement, um, transparency, taking the time to show that you're genuine um, to this cause. In the beginning, that was a challenge because a lot of these folks that own this land either live in, in towns around this area. Um, some live there, but not a lot of people. We're talking about a hundred, hundred or so people on a, on a hundred mile stretch of coastline. So very sparsely populated and, you know, to say, wait, you're going to buy my property to do nothing with it. Didn't quite resonate for a while, but we had the money and they're like, okay, happy to sell this. Um, and I think of, over time, you know, that idea set in more of, yeah, we're here to conserve this land. You know, we don't get, I make a salary, but I don't get paid. We're not going to sell it. It's not an investment other than an investment in nature, um, which we know now has, has profound financial benefits down the road. Um, and, and philanthropy doesn't, you know, it's, it's changing in Mexico, but at that point, you know, it's, it's not as, as common of a, practice as it is, say, in the United States. Um, there's some, a lot of distrust. Um, and I don't think quite the same tax incentives that we have here. So mm. yeah, breaking down those barriers um, definitely took some time and it was met with some funny, funny looks from, from people. But after, you know, years of showing up and being true to our word um, and working with people through the process of of these land transfers, you know, got that, gained that trust and a lot of really amazing people that, that I've learned more about conservation from these fishing families down there than really I did in, you know, two years of graduate school at UCLA. Um, so yeah, incredible, very fulfilling project that I would not be where I am without having worked on that for the first five years of my career. Sounds fantastic. 13 years at Wild Coast before joining uh, Surfrider. Uh, one of the, I love the a focus on trust and establishing relationships in coastal advocacy. I couldn't agree with you more. It is the in, uh, magic ingredient. You, you have to have it to be successful. Uh, and it takes a lot of skill and, as you say, commitment to, to your word and, and being a straightforward and reliable uh, to people and be properly motivated. What I've always loved about about Surfrider Foundation is, you know, the, the folks who, who commit themselves to this organization, so many of them come from a background of enjoying surfing or coastal recreation and have it, it's in your blood. It's sort of like in the blood of the people that I meet from Surfrider. It's that emotional connection, which is an essential, the other essential ingredient to effective advocacy uh, is an emotional reason and commitment to the cause. Um, when we're talking about Surfrider, and you've been there a couple of months now, uh, tell us about the portfolio ahead of you at Surfrider and what you are kind of excited about or fascinated by the topics you're going to dive into. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first, just to join a 37-year-old organization with such a rich history um, in saving coastal areas across the country is 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 an absolute honor, and really excited to work with our 80 chapters and nearly 100 student clubs around around the country. Um, yeah, there's there's really kind of five programmatic buckets that that we're working within um, this year. Uh, one of those is plastic reduction. So reducing the amount of plastics that are entering our marine environment. This is kind of a new new area for me, which I haven't had a lot of experience with, but we have a, a incredible team um, working on, on this initiative. Um, and that means things like uh, bag bans, um, extended producer responsibility from those that are, are manufacturing this stuff. Uh, we have a really great ocean-friendly restaurant program that has about 500 restaurants involved uh, that are, are swapping out, you know, the bad single use plastic packaging for stuff that's much more sustainable. So addressing the plastic crisis in our oceans, one second is ocean protection. So defending our oceans from challenges uh, that threaten the vitality of the ocean ecosystem. So that's offshore oil, uh, seabed mining, establishing marine protected areas. Uh, that's an area that I have a lot of experience with and really excited to work on with our team. Uh, third would be beach access. And that's really kind of related to all the initiatives, but working with decision makers to ensure that there's, there's full beach access for everyone. Um, that's included in the past lawsuits against private encroachment on, on public access ways. Um, it links really well with the fourth initiative area, which is coastal preservation. So taking on issues that threaten our beaches um, and natural shorelines, uh, sea level rise being one of those. Um, and that's really fundamental to kind of that climate coastal work, um, finding bad armoring projects and supporting projects like living shorelines. So that to me, that's really related to the access point. We're creating safe, equitable access um, through nature-based solutions to protecting our coast. And then the fifth pillar is clean water. So protecting the health of our waters. Um, examples of that is the Blue Water Task Force that does uh, testing at beaches across the nation, um, public notifications. So people know when the water's polluted and they shouldn't be entering our, our coasts, our, our, our beaches. Um, and then addressing egregious Clean Water Act violations. One of those is the the ongoing um, crisis on the U.S.-Mexico border with the Tijuana River um, and the sewage and pollution that that comes out of that uh, on a daily basis, a really complicated binational um, issue that Surfrider's on. So those are the five five initiative areas that, that we're working on this year. And then kind of embedded within those is all the chapter work at the local state level and then and then our federal priorities as well. Well, it's no small portfolio no, of, uh, big of, of things that are being worked on over there at Surfrider. Uh, and I got to say, what I, what I need to know is, uh, as the environmental director, how do you fit into each of these five areas? Um, so uh, maybe we just pick one for starters, maybe the plastic reduction. You know, what, what does the environmental director do as, as, on the team? Uh, to, to work on that particular issue area. 
Yeah, I mean, it's I'm, I'm figuring that out here. So that's <laughs> uh, fortunately we have such a <laughs> that's awesome a good question, team. isn't it? Yeah, I, I'm I'm here to support them. Uh, we have a really clear agenda with policies that we're working on at, at a federal and, and state and local levels. Um, at our federal level, we're working on the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. This is the most comprehensive approach to address plastics in our ocean. Uh, requires a whole bunch of stuff from producers of packaging to create recycling programs to bans on products that aren't recycling. Um, so keeping our strategies in line, I think, you know, what's attainable? What can we get done this year? Um, what's the most effective use of our time and resources? I think the challenge is how do we distribute that, you know, throughout the nation? So some states are more challenging to work on these issues than others and uh, florida for example um, so working with our regional team and our policy team to make sure we have bipartisan support for this stuff and fitting it all into the bigger picture i think as well um, one of the things that i'm looking at this year is what's the underlying climate thread through all of our work so how can we talk about plastics in the context of climate change or or beach access in the context of climate change. To me, the climate change impacts on our coastlines is, is the biggest crisis that we're dealing with. And yeah. it's being accelerated and being compounded by plastic pollution and sewage and all that other stuff. So that's kind of my big lift this year um, is to work with our team. So there's clear common kind of clear climate threads throughout all of our initiative hmm. areas. That makes good sense. It's an overlay. And as you say, directly impacts all of these issues. I think people don't know, you know, uh, we're down here in Austin, Texas, and uh, Houston is considered the world uh, energy capital. If you talk to folks in Texas, they'll say Houston is the is the preeminent energy uh, city in the in the world. Uh, but few people know that the number one export product from the port of Houston is plastic resin. Uh, it is, of course, a product of oil and gas, uh, petrochemical processing, and uh, there is increasing emphasis in the oil and gas industry to plastic production. It's kind of a, a good way to, to use the material. Um, a tough challenge um, to take on. Um, how do you, I mean, the visibility, Tyler, I guess in Coastal News Today, we see it all the time. There's a lot of stuff about plastics now. It's becoming more and more predominant in the, in, in, in the world of, of, of Coastal News. Well, it is. And I think that it's, it's elevated. It's had a meteoric, meteoric rise uh, in, in the coastal advocacy space. We have watched a flurry of governmental, uh, at, at different government levels from uh, cities and counties, and I believe even state. I be did I just hear that the nation of France had a big plastic ban? I believe I did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There has been a flurry of uh, plastic policy going on all over the American shoreline. I have to say it's been nice to see uh, yeah. because for a long time, this was the stuff of, you know, the occasional social media video and right. then you're driving along the street and you just notice every piece of plastic that you drive by and it just, you just want to, uh, it's, it's terrible. It's a tragedy. It's a damn tragedy. But what I, what I think is interesting about the Surfrider Foundation, Zach, is that, you know, as you mentioned, it's, I think you said it was 38 years old. I'm going to, if, if, if I heard correctly. Yeah. 
And uh, during that period of time, of course, what I love about Surfrider is that it's a bottom up organization. It is like the surfers that were at the beach fighting for clean water, fighting for access, fighting for uh, a good beach. And what that means is over that period of time, as the or organization kind of evolves, is there are there's several things like on that list of five things. There are several things that are uh, in that Zach, you I, I don't want to say that you're inheriting, but these are these are. Uh, parts of the body of Surfrider that have developed over its lifetime. And what's interesting about what I wrote down in my notebook when you said the thread, it's the it's the thread that binds all of all the, all of us together. Ironically, isn't that funny that that the climate, climate. Yeah. that climate change started off as this you know super divisive kind of culture war thing, but it really does have the potential to. Uh, being ironically like a super unifying and clarifying thing about our relationship with the planet and how we as humans have to find a way to exist more sustainably and more within kind of a, a managed uh, and realistic way. But I, I think I'm just repeating everything you said, Zach. I mean, I'm, I'm, do you agree with me? Am I, am I, uh, am I preaching to the choir here? Yeah, I mean, absolutely agree with you. And I, to your point, you know, with the bottom up approach and the, the surfers and the outdoor enthusiasts are at the front lines of, of these issues. So, you know, I think with, with plastics too, it's like, we see that, that can kind of, nobody wants trash in the ocean, right? It doesn't matter what political ideology you align yourself on that's bad and with people recognizing that and seeing that and caring then we can push legislation and get action done to to help solve that problem um but yeah absolutely and and it's you know it's i can speak for our coastlines mostly but you know the sea level rise impacts in say southern california where we've had a lot of bad development um a lot of coastal armoring the 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 uh, business as usual approach doesn't work anymore. And we're seeing more, you know, surfers and outdoor enthusiasts and people on our coastline recognizing that. So it's hopefully it's, we're, it's not as politicized and we can come up with solutions because if we can't, then, you know, that's it. We're not going to have um, any of the, the amazing natural stuff that we had in the past um, if we can't get ahead of this. Agreed. And Zach, I just, but I, I do have to follow up because I think that like one of the uh, interesting things that's happening all around the American shoreline where uh, communities are confronting these same issues uh, is that on the one hand, we have, um, you know, bag bans, we can, you know, uh, ban offshore oil in the, in the realm of ocean protection. Now we can uh, stop drilling offshore. We can stop uh, seabed mining before it starts. Um, uh, but uh, the other part of this is we need to kind of do things differently. We need to engage in new uh, activities. And uh, there is a great deal of excitement these days in this kind of new blue economy. Um, that The seabed mining thing, there are, there are people licking their lips. I swear, they see opportunity there. And I was very pleased to see California... Uh, uh, propose, I don't know if it's passed, but there's new legislation on the docket yeah. um, that would uh, certainly prevent that. Um, but what is far from your position as the environmental director at Surfrider, um, do you see a 
what what do you see happening offshore uh, California? Do you see aquaculture emerging? Do you see kelp emerging? Are these things that are copacetic with Surfrider's vision? It, it really depends on how those all play out. So, you know, we were totally supportive, obviously, of decarbonizing the, the global economy. We have to do that to address the climate climate crisis. And with that's going to become renewable energy production. And part of that portfolio will be offshore wind. Um, and California is looking at areas to do that. So we're going to be aware of and you know, involved in the process to make sure that stuff like that happens in the right way and the right places. Um, I envision there's going to be, it's going to be a challenge of how we balance the natural environment with our, our renewable energy needs, um, just to, to touch on that. But there's so much potential through nature-based solutions. Uh, that's an area that I'm really excited about and expanding Surfrider's portfolio around. My last chapter at Wild Coast was developing our, a blue carbon program in both California and Mexico. In the case of Mexico, it was the conservation of mangroves and restoration of mangroves in California. It was the, the conservation and restoration of coastal uh, wetlands, salt marsh, seagrass, and actually quantifying the amount of carbon that's stored in coastal wetlands. And under the different models of, of sea level rise, looking at what's at risk of being converted from a carbon sink to a carbon source in that if these wetlands don't have anywhere to, to migrate to with sea level rise because right. of a rigid urban natural interface, they're going to get squeezed out in the coastal squeeze and render those ecosystems ineffective at capturing carbon. Um, Surfrider has a huge, you know, our, our regions are from, you know, Hawaii to the Pacific Northwest to Maine to Florida to Puerto Rico to Southern California. In all of those areas, we have uh, carbon storing ecosystems um, and, and protecting these wetlands and, and habitat around wetlands. Uh, whether those wetlands are mangroves or salt marsh or seagrass, you know, has multiple benefits by, you know, enhancing habitat. There's recreation opportunities. They buffer coastlines against increasing storms and flooding and sea level rise. And then they have this carbon storage component too. Yeah, they do. So we're actually going to be looking at our regions and where there's their opportunity. Uh, we're already, already doing um, dune restoration on the East coast and in, in Puerto Rico. Um, which is really cool and right on lines there. But looking at these nature-based solutions, living shorelines instead of revetment and seawalls, um, that's that's an area that we're going to be getting ourselves much more involved in in 2022. Yeah, right down the middle. Uh, important work, 100% factually accurate that the uh, preservation of uh, coastal and nearshore habitats are uh, critical, carbon sinks and important in addressing climate change. I am personally a big fan of the we've got to do it all mentality. Uh, we have been following the development of offshore wind around the world, but particularly in the United States since the Biden administration came in. There's substantial energy going in the direction of getting uh, lease areas uh, in federal waters from the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management uh, out and into the market. Um, and we had the opportunity to talk to Adam Stern, who's the executive director of Offshore Wind California, uh, kind of a trade association organization that does include some cooperative uh, membership from the from the uh, nonprofit and uh, uh, environmental advocacy sector. Here's my question, Zach, is 
Um, I know that this has to be done in a particularly good way, that there are considerations that are critically important in how these uh, offshore wind is developed on the Pacific coast um, in terms of its location, the method of the securing of these towers, uh, looking at gray whale and other whale transit and all sorts of complex issues, fisheries impacts and others. But at the end of the day, I am personally convinced that we've got to find a way to change the energy sector and we've got to get smart and get powerful in offshore wind. Uh, that does create tension in the environmental community, not just at Surfrider, but in other organizations that give a damn about all the other assets and natural resources of the coastal area. Tell us what your thought is coming in as the environmental director of Surfrider and uh, how you think that the balance, the proper balance for offshore wind in on the, not just the West Coast, you're a national guy now at Surfrider. Um, what, do you, what are your thoughts on offshore wind? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. We do have to do everything and we're going to have to make some really tough decisions too. Um, so it's, you know, it's a lot of potential there. I'm excited to, to see what's worked on, on the East Coast, for example, um, and, and Northern Europe as well. Um, and then see how that applies to California. Cause it's really kind of, you know, it, it's new for us here. Um, but totally supportive of these alternative energies that we're absolutely going to have to invest in, um, to decarbonize and to address the climate crisis. So it's a combination of renewables that are appropriately placed and the nature-based solutions. Um, right on. but you know, the, the business as usual, isn't going to work anymore. We're going to have to be really aggressive. Do, do you have a feeling, uh, you know, having been in California, working with wild coast now, uh, for 13 years and now at the Surfrider foundation, are you confident and comfortable in the California coastal commission and the state's leadership, um, either in the regulatory setting, ex the executive branch, that there is the proper level of sensitivity about the proper development of offshore wind in California. Do you have a sense of like, yeah, we're on the right path here, or do you, or what's your feeling about the, 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 the context that you are operating within? Yeah, I, I think we are on the right path. And I think right now that the current administration and California Natural Resources Agency, there's great people involved that have a really uh, transparent and inclusive process. So with that, with the process in place, I'm confident that there's going to be inclusion. Um, we're going to be, you know, working with uh, coastal tribes throughout the state and other communities that aren't haven't traditionally been involved with with coastal and, and ocean uh, management issues. So, I, I think we've we've learned a lot from California's um, marine protected area development process. Um, there's great California Natural Resources Agency is doing a stellar job of the whole 30 by 30 process. Um, and this is the decadal review year of California's marine protected areas. So there's been a lot of lessons learned over the past that I see applied to these planning processes that I hope, and I'm pretty confident will then be applied to when it comes to offshore wind and, 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 and other similar issues off the coastline. Uh, going back to, uh, your earlier comments on working down in Mexico and listening specifically, you were talking about conversations that you would have 
it sounded I was I kind of was reading between the lines. It sounded like you were having some really long kind of, you know, when I say long, I mean like multiple deep conversations with these fishermen and that through talking and listening, um, you were able to work uh, toward a solution that was agreeable. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, maybe we can pick one or maybe you could maybe we can pick what you think might be the most challenging one. But where where you where you're looking to, I guess, listen and um, f extract a solution, I guess, from the framework that that isn't isn't there. You just kind of have to listen to it and, and invent it. Is there a, is you have your eyes on a target where you think, hey, something might be in range here if we if we open our ears up a little bit and work things out? Yeah, absolutely. And I think those conversations with with fishing families in the deserts of Baja, um, I kind of applied that approach to working with fishing communities in California uh, post 2012 when California's Marine Protected Area Network was established, which was a very divisive process. Um, it pitted NGO communities against the extractive users and the fishing communities mostly. And there was a lot of undoing of the undoing the tension for many, many years, um, through uh, working on that. If, okay, we have this MPA network set up now, how do we make it work? That's where the hard stuff happens. You know, that's the day-to-day -day action every single day to make this protected area network actually function. And. I got in a good place with a lot of these communities because of, okay, let's, hey, let's find common ground. Let's take the time, invest that time into each other and listen to what each other have to say to come up with solutions, um, come up with uh, whether they're policy solutions on shortfalls on, in MPA enforcement or simple stuff like getting signage installed uh, at coastal access points. So we're, entering a new phase of that with um, California's 30 by 30 endeavor to protect 30% of our land and ocean by, by 2030, um, which is part of a whole global effort to do this. Um, uh, I look at it as we just need to protect as much as we absolutely possibly can, you know, 30% is just, just a percentage, you know, if we can do 50 even better, but for now we're, we're doing this bite-sized chunk and, you know, it's, it's not met with uh, applause from everybody. You know, it's mm -hmm. once again, pitting the fishing communities against the NGO communities, and we're gonna have to start all over again. Hopefully the groundwork that's been laid and the work that I've been able to do can help us advance this so we can have, uh, you know, a, a adequate amount of our coast and ocean conserved and protected while meeting the needs of everybody. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's going to be a challenge, but it's tricky we're, business. we're in it already. It's tricky business and it t it's a high skill uh, exercise. I know, as you know, and Tyler and I have been in and around coastal advocacy and met many, many people operating in this realm. And it is such a high level of personal interactive skill, knowledge, credibility. It's, this is none of these things are easy to do. Uh, there are real economic interests at play. Um, I really hope that you have success in, in connecting with the, the fishing community and other users because those guys are powerful politically. And damn it, I want them on the front lines on the conservation side. Well, and, and I'm just going to jump in here. Yeah, this, and Zach, this is just me. This is not you. <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking for myself here. But Peter, what I foresee happening 
is that you know Surfrider? It, I I said it before. I'll say it again. I think they are the preeminent uh, advocacy group. They are not the only group, though. And but be, but being who they are, being as strong as as uh, truly grassroots oriented as they are, I do think that they will play a critical role. Yeah, and finding that middle ground because mm-hmm. uh, what what all too often we do in our societies we fight. Uh, yeah, you know, go to our corners. We go to our corners and we duke it out. And I think that the Surf Rider Foundation can really lead from the advocacy perspective because of its reputation, which is sterling, because of the fact that it's real. They're real grassroots people that, you know what, that, you know, it's a this is a bipartisan organization, ladies and gentlemen, obviously very environmentally focused. But yeah. if you go out there and you meet surfers, let me tell you something. This is not. Uh, you'd be surprised. There's there's all sorts of political stripes among surfers and and beachgoers everywhere. Yeah. And so this is a, di- a diverse community of interests. And I do think that the Surfrider Foundation's uh, cohesion and the ability to listen will come in place. Oftentimes, I think in granting permission to go forward, say on offshore wind and things yeah. like that. Well, that I think I you think, need the cover. I, well, I think this is I, I, I truly believe this. I think that the the fate of the offshore wind industry in California and how that unrolls is not going to be over the dead body of Surfrider. Surfrider is a powerful organization, respected and is listened to. And the organization, I think, will play an instrumental role along with others, many others. But. Um, it, it, do you feel that sense of responsibility, uh, Zach, as, as you take on this position, uh, given the magnitude of the issues that we're facing along the American shoreline, not just California? Uh, you guys are in a key position. Does it? How do you handle that expectation and kind of the responsibility of that? Yeah, it's I mean, you're right. It's we we're in this unique position and powerful position because we have you know, these 80 chapters and, and nearly a hundred student clubs across the country. So we have that grassroots base that's on the pulse of local issues. Uh, the challenge of that is meeting those expectations, both by the outside communities that want to involve us in anything that has to do with the coast. Um, and then, so meeting the needs of the chapter, but then we have this strong set of federal priorities where one of our strengths is that where you have this path to the pathway for you know the local chapters to to aggregate on issues and then a clear path to you know straight to the white house on on a lot of these issues and passing federal level legislation that can that can address be you know beyond you know include the states and 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 address issues locally um but doing so at a federal level so it's this it's a balance of yeah. meeting local needs, but then also pushing forward a strong, you know, nationwide federal agenda. Yeah. And having, you know, and Surfrider does have the credibility and the track record to play uh, on the stage in these major, major issues where billions of dollars in investment are on the line and as a trusted voice in the process. But Tyler and I, I think both recognize that we, you know, we, we wish uh, you and other organizations that are, that are instrumental in the future of our coastlines, uh, all of the luck in the world and the skill that it takes to really do the kind of effective work uh, needed. Uh, we're facing some huge challenges. I want to turn our attention to sea level rise. I want to talk about beach nourishment. 
But more importantly, I, I, on on the California coast, I want to talk about those cliffs and the and the stabilization of the of the cliff bottoms that are that are. This is a this is what's so incredible, Tyra, about coastal issues, as you know. This is never ending complexity, balancing upland property, private property rights interests, the financial interest there with the public access to the shoreline and to sea level rise and erosion. I mean, there just isn't any easy answer here. Um, share share with us a little bit about surf riders thinking and your thinking on how to confront rising sea level eroding beaches in california and these dangerous bluff situations that have arisen in the last you know three years well it's been all there all the time but some people being killed lately with some of these bluff collapses but yeah what do you what's your thought on this topic area yeah it's it's a complicated one so i grew up in solana beach which is ground zero for for these these issues both the sand loss due to overdevelopment in our watersheds exacerbated by paving our, our the natural bluffs there um homeowners fighting with coastal commission and rising seas and lost access and it's it's got it all um on this several miles stretch of North San Diego County shoreline. In fact, Solana Beach has the highest percentage of armored shoreline of any town in the nation. So last I checked was 90%. I'm sure it's a few percentage higher than that now, but nearly the entire city's bluff line is is armored. Um, Some of it's the old stuff, just the cement wall. Some of it's the eroding uh, seawall that has a somewhat more natural aesthetic to it, but it's, it's right. fundamentally changed the whole experience there. Um, and it's, it's a challenge. So really what, you know, what we're looking at is what's precedent setting, you know, we're not going to save every inch of, of bluff from being paved over. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to undo, you know, the bad decisions right. and undo the decision of putting homes immediately adjacent, you know, on top of the bluff. Um, that's, that's where we're going to have to deal with and figure it out. But, uh, I'm so looking at like, what's, what sets precedent for the rest of the state and then really getting, you know, throwing our weight into those battles. Um, the city of Del Mar right now is going, is going through this, uh, rail alignment because the railway also right on the cliff, um, cliff is falling into the ocean. The North County Transit District wants to pave at least a quarter mile of bluff there to stabilize the railroad tracks. When the long-term solution is those tracks need to move, move them, else. move them, exactly. Get out the checkbook is, and move them. Yeah, <laughs> come on. So, you know, looking at any developed place in the world that has a much more effective transportation system than we, than we, what we have, unfortunately, in Southern California, in regards to where we place this stuff, but. Um, that's a challenging one that's going to set precedent on how that decision gets decided. So we're active on those kind of big, you know, high level, um, uh, issues around seawalls and armoring, you know, beach nourishment, it's going to happen to some extent. It's not the best solution. I wish we didn't have to do that. Uh, there's good be- there's better beach nourishment projects yep. than some. And so you know, really advocating for the, the right ones to be done. Um, the ones that use local natural sand that's deposited in the right place. I get worried when we do these beach nourishment projects about the reefs nearby that get buried for a period of time. Of course. So those are all stuff that we want to look at. We need more monitoring after we do these nourishment projects to help guide our decisions around the next one. 
But um, back to these nature-based solutions, now I'm up in Ventura County, and there's one of the best examples of, of a, a nature-based solution to coastal zone adaptation as it relates to sea level rise. And that's a living shoreline project. So a whole section of parking lot was moved off the beach and replaced with natural dunes. Yep. There wasn't a single, you know, no parking was lost. It was just relocated because you have an opportunity to do that there. It's right at the terminus of the Ventura River, um, which Surfrider is also working on removing Matillaha Dam, which blocks a lot of sediment. from. We're for that. Yeah, we're, we're so, in favor. <laughs> yeah. So here we have a great, great, you know, looking at this living shoreline project, restoring the river function. You know, we're going to it's going to provide more sand to the entire coastline there, which has significant armoring issues, you know, old revetment. Uh, the whole boardwalk in Ventura is crumbling into the ocean and a phase two of that living shoreline project will actually expand the dunes and that, you know, natural system southward. So wherever we get those opportunities, we need to take them. Um, like I said, we're not going to save every stretch, of every, every inch of coastline, but where we have opportunities that can be multi-beneficial, it can enhance access, it can feed sand onto adjacent beaches, um, so those are the projects that we're looking at. We're going to have to, you know, again, balance. There's going to be seawalls. There's going to be sand dumped on our beaches, but there's also these, these opportunities as well. Yep. The, the, the list of things to do, Zach, never gets shorter when you're no, working on the American <laughs> shoreline uh, in any state and especially being the national director of this group. And, and what I just want to say is, you know, this, this vision uh, just that happens to be there in Ventura, Peter, we're familiar. We've toured that site. We've been to the dam. Um, we've, we've, we've been to the dam. We've seen the managed been, retreat site. Yeah, we we've uh, been able to really watch that actually over the past few years as it's uh, been happening. And what I really want to say is just how exciting it is to be doing something to be address, you know, addressing yeah. the problem. It it actually feels really good, and the positive vision for the future, man. Glass half full all the way. That's that's what I like. That's the way I like to keep it. I hope so, that, Zach. That was going to be my final wrap up question. You get the final word here uh, on the show. Um, you know, you've been around these issues for now uh, many many years, and. Uh, facing some of the biggest challenges as plastics and climate change and other things come into focus. Are you optimistic or how do you feel about it? I am optimistic. I mean, not to spend too much time on the Living Shoreline Project, but the fact that, you know, like you said, it's like the policy stuff is super important. I love working on it. We've got to do it. But then there's also the on the ground action. What can we do tomorrow? How can we make this place more beautiful, more effective at, in its ecosystem services? So. It, it, to see that happening adjacent to an area that needs it gives me hope that well, we can get this done. We can recreate a dune system and make the surf better and buffer our, our, our coastal development against rising seas. So I'm optimistic and right. the, the vast network that I have to work with, um, all these chapters, the amount of the, the tens of thousands of people we can mobilize at Surfrider gives me a lot of hope. Ladies and gentlemen, from Ventura County, California, it is Zach Plopper. He is the environmental director of one of our favorite coastal advocacy organizations, the Surfrider Foundation. Zach, thank you for sharing your insights with us. We wish you the best in your new position with Surfrider. And you've always got a place to come and tell us about your great successes as your, as your career with Surfrider unfolds. Thanks a lot for taking the time. 
Thanks so much, you guys. Jesus said.